Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Christine Lai. She is the author of Landscapes, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Christine, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to have you here. And Christine, before we dive into your excellent novel, Landscapes, I have a couple of questions. First, how did your novel find its way to $2 Radio, and how has it been working with them so far? Um, so my my uh, previous agent, um, Stephanie Sinclair, had worked with them um, on two other books, and she really admires their work. And um, yeah, so she she sent the manuscript um, to Eric, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and, and I, he loved it. And I, I have absolutely loved working with them. They're they are you know the dream team. Um, mm-hmm. The entire like editorial process and copy editing process has just been um, really fantastic, and I've learned a lot from them. And um, I love what they built in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. I don't know if you've been, but the, um, the HQ is just like the most amazing space. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been a wonderful experience working with them. Nice, yeah, Eric and Eliza, two of my favorite people, and I haven't been there yet. Um, though I've been working with them in some way or another for gosh, I don't. Know, it feels like twenty years almost at this oh, juncture, but um, you know, right, right since they started. But um, I will be there in February, I believe. So I do look forward yeah, to seeing it for the first awesome. time. Yeah, that should be fun. Um, my second question, uh, before we dive into your novel here is you have a PhD in English literature. Uh, What did you research? What was your specialty? And how did studying English literature prepare you for writing your novel? Um, So my specialty was uh, English romanticism. So Mm. I I looked at um, representations of the city and architecture in romantic London, Regency London. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it prepared me for for writing a novel. Um, certainly the the research part um, of, of the novel um, was made easier because of of um, my experience with doing research. And mm-hmm. I did use some of the material in the novel. So, for example, um, all the bits about Turner that that is from from my my PhD. Um, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was just um, so you know I, I learned along the way how how to write novels. So. I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, what who are the main authors of that period that you studied in uh, romantic? Um, uh, Thomas de Quincey, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the Shelleys, mm-hmm. um, Keats. Um, so, you know, all the known names and also yeah. some um, like l- lesser known names like journalists um, mm-hmm. who wrote for the periodicals and magazines and so on. Um, and Anya Turner, um, who actually wrote poetry, mm-hmm. um, and um, John Song, who the architect who's also referenced in the novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Christine. Well, now let's dive into this excellent novel, Landscapes. And first, Christine, can you take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the the novel is mostly set in a dilapidated country estate in the English mm-hmm. countryside. And it's set um, at an unspecified time in the future, uh, a time of, I guess, greater or more severe ecological devastation than what we are currently experiencing. Um, mm-hmm. 
And at the start of the novel, readers find out that the the house is scheduled to be demolished. So the protagonist, uh, Penelope, who has lived in this house for for about two decades, um, she's responsible for kind of organizing the remaining items in in the the house's collection archives. Um, And as she is going through these um, objects and images, she is also um, kind of pulled into her past. Mm -hmm. So she starts reminiscing about her um, her relationship with um, Julian, who is the second major character in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they had a relationship two decades ago and he was the former owner of the house. Um, but that relationship ended um, in, in violence um, and left her um, um, traumatized. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of her kind of um, her uh, reflections are about kind of reconciling herself to that part of her past. Mm-hmm. And um, the book is uh, kind of written um, in, in a combination of like diary entries told from P- Penelope's perspective, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, essays on art history and art criticism. And there's a third section that's told from Julian's perspective, and that's a more kind of traditional um, third person narrative um, that follows his journey from Italy back to, to England. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, one of my favorite subgenres of literature is uh, art novels, novels about art or works of literature about art. I think back to the great poem Landscape with the Fall of Icarus onto more mm-hmm. recent works by uh, Adrian Brodeur and Barb Shapiro that center around mm-hmm. art or the art world. Um, where does your novel fall in that genre, Christine? And why do you think art, visual art specifically and literature work so well together? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I'm very indebted to uh, a lot of um, other writers who use art um, in, in their writing, mm-hmm. um, particularly uh, Teju Cole and Kate mm-hmm. Zambrino, um, Amina Kane. Um, and I just, I just can't imagine writing without visual arts, actually. I think, you know, for, for all of my projects, even like short stories and essays, mm-hmm. um, they always begin with some sort of visual image. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's this great... Um, a uh, part of um, or- Orham Pamuk's um, uh, The Naive and Sentimental Novelist, I don't know if you know it, where he he writes about how like novelists are secretly envious of, of painters mm. um, because of the way in which, you know, the visual arts and painting can encapsulate something that would be much more difficult for language to capture. Mm-hmm. And when we write, it's always a process of um, translating this visual image we have in our heads um, mm-hmm. into um, words. Um, so, so I think that, that that's very much how I kind of operate. Um, mm-hmm. I always start with with that um, image. And I, and I love looking at um, books that have these kind of, I guess, um, uh, encounters with art that enable the characters to somehow come to 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 a, uh, some sort of realization or um, to um, you know uh, encounter their past and so on. So so there, um, what art is capable of is just it's so endlessly fascinating, and it's just this this like um, uh, repository of of so many ideas and um, and inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Christine. Um, 
I have a master's in English literature. I never went for my PhD. Maybe someday I will. But I mostly studied Joyce and Nabokov, specifically Pale Fire uh, by Nabokov. I did a lot of work with. And the structure of Pale Fire, for our listeners who may be unaware, is that there was a poem by John Shade, who recently passed away, and Shade's colleague, Charles Kinboat, offers commentary on the poem that blossoms into this wonderfully weird sort of choose-your-own-adventure novel. Um, I found myself thinking about Charles Kinbo and John Shade while reading your novel, and my question, Christine, is what can we learn about a character, a protagonist especially, by their commentary on someone else's art, especially one of their acquaintances? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I, I think um, we can learn a lot, and... Um, you know, a lot of the the writing uh, that that appears in landscapes is actually Penelope's writing. So the the art essays as well as the diary entries. Um, but I wanted to show a difference in style. So so the art um, essays are much more academic, and so there's this kind of like aloofness um, in in the tone, um, and that and those were written at a at a particular uh, stage in her life, and so they they are meant to. Um, I think represent her her um, struggles with what had happened to her, whereas the diary entries, which are meant to be kind of like the present, um, they're written in a much more kind of um, open ended, flowing, and capacious manner mm-hmm. that um, is is missing in in the art essays. And so I wanted to show that shift in her perspective and, and a shift in her relationship to art. Um, so she goes from, you know, art being something that's kind of aloof, um, uh, purely a subject of academic study to something um, th- that um, has come to define her her private and emotional life and, and, um, and something that kind of guides her through um, all the difficulties. Yeah, if that makes sense. So, so I think that the the yeah the changes in style and what the character chooses to comment on mm-hmm. um, certainly reflects um, the state of mind um, as well as you know their their interests as well. So, so I use um, the 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 archive items, all these objects in in the book, um, to to kind of um, refract um, Penelope's preoccupations. Mm-hmm. And um, also the, the 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 items kind of act as springboards for the various episodes that she remembers from her past. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Christine. And to elaborate on this for just a moment, and this is maybe like a, a literary criticism slash uh, rhetoric question. <laughs> when does the critic become part of the work that they are criticizing ever? Oh wow, that's I don't know if I can answer that. Um, how to answer? Um, I think the critic always brings something of themselves, of course, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to the work of criticism, um, mm-hmm. even even in the most kind of um, so-called objective criticism, or even when there is this <laughs> aloof tone, there's always something of the, the subjective um, in criticism, um, and. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Have you ever have you ever approached a work of art that you have not been able to separate from a critique that you read of it? Oh yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of something that comes to mind. Certainly, books. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find that if I read a great piece of criticism, it does in some ways kind of um, uh, like color what I 
see what what I read when I actually encounter the book. So sometimes I prefer not to read the criticism before I read a book I want to kind of encounter on my own terms. And then afterwards I would I would read a criticism. Yeah. But I think criticism is just it's like a a lens, you know, it's um right. it's in, incredibly insightful and useful. And um I, I yeah, do do read it a lot, especially with I think artworks. So, so often I find myself um kind of lost in front of artwork. And I think that's part of what is fascinating about our encounters with art is that um, the way that art kind of challenges language or challenges the way that we think. And so I find that in those situations, criticism uh, is indispensable, you know, kind of guides us in in terms of how we approach um, the works. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad I'm not the only person who waits till after they've read the book to read the review. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Christine. Listeners, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsor. And I will be right back with Christine Lai. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore explore booksellers in the process i'm back with christine lie author of landscapes which is published by our friends at two dollar radio christine as you've mentioned your protagonist is named penelope Uh, her name is not really out there for a while i believe i marked page 19 of the novel when we first learn her name not by her saying her name but that she's named after um after uh, a character from after i think you phrase it after odysseus's yes um yeah the wife of wife. yes exactly sorry thank you for saving me there um i think it's page 19 i have a digital arc of this book but first what is the reasoning behind leaving her unnamed for 19 pages and second what happens in a writer's mind and a reader's mind when we confront a character named penelope a name that has so many associations from the jump um, so the reason why I left, I didn't mention her name until um, that late in the book, it is because, you know, it starts with a first person narrator mm-hmm. um, and it written in the form of her diary. So I just found it, it was awkward mm-hmm. to mention her name any early because, you know, we wouldn't refer to ourselves by our first names in mm-hmm. our own diaries or notebooks you know what I mean um mm-hmm. so so that was that was a reason for that um and and definitely the name Penelope comes with many associations and 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 that was intended so this idea of the woman um waiting and uh weaving and unweaving and undoing um the the, the tapestry um so I wanted this this association between the writing of the diaries and the um the weaving of the tapestry that the you know readers might associate with um uh, the Penelope from the Odyssey. Um, and there's also another kind of indirect reference to the Odyssey, which is, you know, the the the, the, the male figure returning home. Um, the, I want, don't want to give anything away, but that that sort of um, Julian's journey sort of parallels that in some ways, or it's a reference to that part of, of the, the Odyssey. Yeah, thank you so much, Christine. Let's now talk about documentation, uh, archiving. There is a heavy emphasis on 
archiving and documenting in this novel. Why is this such a concern for Penelope? Um, so I saw the archiving as, um, you know, another form of preservation um, and a way of um, helping these very fragile objects endure um, in the face of um, all of these, uh, you know, whether it's environmental or social forces that that seek to kind of they're, they're threatening them in some way, and so so the the in some ways the the fragility of the objects or what the objects have undergone um, parallel what Penelope has undergone, which is why there are all these descriptions of like you know the the books being kind of like um, um, like warm eaten and you know water damaged and so on. So none of them are in perfect condition. Mm. Um, so her attempt to preserve an archive and you know very carefully document um, these uh, these these objects kind of parallel her uh, the work that she has done in her own on her own life, trying mm. to preserve her own life um, in the aftermath of of something terrible that has happened mm. um and and i also think that the archiving is a way of like um kind of imposing order on her daily life there's this great quote by um italo calvino um and i'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing when he talks about how like there's this um a connection between diary writing and um the collecting of objects because both are forms of um um imposing order and turning um like chaos into a neat series of objects or of words and so that was the image I had in, in my in my head as I was trying to to um to portray her her process of of archiving all these um objects yeah absolutely thank you so much um Christine in this novel there has been no rain in England for three years how do people survive for three years with no water? What does this do to a people and a society? Well, I think it, it would be um, detrimental. And, you know, there are parts of the world already where, where people are enduring long periods of, um, of drought. Um, and, you know, I wanted to look at what would happen in the near future when all of these um, uh, problems that we're witnessing right now become even worse um, and you know I, um, I'm not very optimistic um, when it comes to um, the, the the climate crisis you know I think that all the evidence kind of suggests that it will get worse um, and um, it, people have asked me you know uh, you know is this book speculative and you know there, there are definitely elements that are um, not yet possible in the real world so, so the 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 domes for example um, are not yet possible in the world, but actually a lot of the details um, I took from the news. Um, so when I first started writing, um, it, the idea of like floods in Europe sounded very far away. But of course, in this in in the the six years during which I've written the book, we have seen uh, just loads of floods, forest fires, um, extreme heat. So all of those have actually um, come true, and it, it's been kind of terrifying. To witness that um, and to then try to imagine that um, I think that sense of panic and grief um, that, that we are already feeling um, and to imagine what people a few generations from now would feel um, so it was um, th that was quite a difficult part of, of the process to 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 think about all of these issues um, 
and uh you know and i did read about um uh the various problems that are already appearing in the in the actual uh country estate so for example the the ash die back um that is real um and that is something that's already affecting um ash woodland in in england um a lot of the these houses um are are being threatened by the rise in temperature and by pests and so on so you know all of those elements are not actually um speculative which is partly what makes them kind of terrifying to me yeah absolutely here in aspen colorado for the last uh, month and a half or so it's been in the upper 90s which for this it's that's unheard of here totally unheard of yeah so it's it's pretty gnarly but um Mm -hmm. is this a work of climate fiction or cli-fi as the great author tc boyle recently called it yeah some some people um do do call it that mm-hmm. I didn't want to put a label on it mm-hmm. um I I you know I was more interested in like the, the porousness between mm-hmm. genres mm-hmm. and the 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 novels I had used as inspiration were models were are not typically categorized as that so I'm thinking of um Kazuo Ishiguro's um Never Let Me Go mm-hmm. um, so he's very good at this kind of like um the the um erasing of the boundaries between genres mm-hmm. um and also um Marlon Holshoffer's The Wall, mm-hmm. um, which was um, published by New Directions last year. And mm-hmm. so so that was um, a really important book to me because, you know, there was also this kind of dystopian framework. Um, mm-hmm. But the book is really about like community and companionship and how to kind of survive catastrophe and mm-hmm. how to bear witness to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Christine. Um. I now want to talk about the concept of possession uh, mm-hmm. via a passage of your novel, as possession is something that um, keeps coming up over and over mm-hmm. again. The passage I'm speaking of reads, quote, Each time I experience a sense of loss, I remind myself that none of this was mine to begin with, and none of it was as important as it seemed. End quote. Uh, this is from Penelope's perspective. Um, can you talk about this quote and what it tells us about Penelope and her thoughts on the concept of possession and maybe even of uh, capitalism in general? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, the, the idea of possession, which is related to class and mm-hmm. exclusivity, um, was important to me um, in the writing of the book. Um, and so the two main characters, they have very different relationship to the idea of possession. So I think that Penelope, because she comes from more of a working class background, she is very conscious of um, the the house as a, a symbol of, of privilege and exclusivity. And so she, she um, feels a sense of discomfort when she is there. And um, despite her like attachment um, to these various objects and to the paintings, um, she's aware that um, there are certain things that we can never claim um, because they do not belong to us. And that, that includes um, nature, for example, it might include another person. Um, despite the fact that when we, when we see something beautiful, we might have this impulse to, to possess it, to, to want to kind of claim it. Um, and Julian is in many ways the opposite of that um, because when, when he sees something beautiful, he, he, he definitely tries to to claim it and um his his um relationship to 
possession is much more about much more to do with his wealth mm. and um his his um tremendous privilege um and in some ways you know he he embodies i think a form of um of capitalism that is extremely damaging um and that is uh, very resistant to change and um yeah, partly set the the story in in a country house because of all of these historical associations between um, country houses and, um, and and the and the problem of of wealth mm. um, and you know the enclosure uh, enclosure of public commons and and public paths um, turning everything to private property um, destroying woodland destroying villages in order to make way for these you know grand beautiful landscape parks. And there's also the the connection to um, to colonial power that's mm. kind of implicit, and there are kind of details about um, where the the money that built the house um, came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I think there are all of these layers that look at um, yeah our our relationship to 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 possession and to to questions of ownership. Uh, thank you so much, Christine. Um, finally, and listeners, we have barely grazed the surface of this wonderful novel that I will be thinking about for a very long time, and no doubt rereading as soon as I am able. It's one of these novels that I can tell rewards multiple readings, and that is a wonderful thing. Uh, but finally, Christine, society seems to be breaking down in this novel. There's no water, as we mentioned. The water that is somehow remaining is rationed out to the extreme, and yet there is construction ongoing things are being built there is money um mm-hmm. things are being bought and sold uh what does this tell us about the world in which uh landscapes takes place christine the society that is breaking down when things are still being built and bought and sold juxtaposed with say the road by cormac mccarthy where society mm-hmm. breaks down due to a disaster a bomb i believe and there is no construction there is no money there is only collecting pillaging and survival yeah, so the world as depicted is definitely not um, post-apocalyptic. So there's mm-hmm. no um, complete breakdown mm-hmm. of society. And in fact, um, in terms of you know construction and wealth, I mm-hmm. don't think there's much difference between the, the fictional world and the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. I think that there is this 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 widening um, divide mm-hmm. um, between those who are uh, going to continue to to, to build. And to 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 profit um, from from all of these constructions and those who are going to be left out, um, and it yeah, so it's 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 definitely um, uh, a, a terrible world, you know, a, a world in which many people are are going to be um, uh, become victims of you know the climate crisis, social injustice, and so on. And so there are these. Um, uh, the, the, the refugee characters kind of mm-hmm. point towards that mm-hmm. and um it was very important to me to have that aspect to it um so that it, the story really isn't just about um what penelope um suffers it's 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 um it's about kind of a wider social political um uh problem mm-hmm. of which she is she is aware and she of course part of that and she's trying to um to do what she can to um to help uh, particular individuals even though she can't obviously solve the problems 
Yeah, not too far-fetched of an idea here in uh, Aspen, Colorado, where the average home price is, I think, $16 million right oh now. <laughs> yeah, totally wow, ridiculous. that is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's very insane. Well, um, thank you, Christine, and thank you for writing this wonderful novel. Thank Listeners, you. yeah, I've been speaking with Christine Lai, author of Landscapes, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Christine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Christine Lai for joining me. Copies of Landscapes can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.